Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of The Edric Show. I am your host, Edric Jerome. This is the place for intelligent conversation with interesting people. Go ahead and hit that subscribe button, leave a comment, give us a like. Let me know how I'm doing as I bring you this interesting content each and every week. My guest today is Lauren K. Johnson, author of the new memoir, The Fine Art of Camouflage. The book chronicled Lauren's experiences as a second-generation female soldier and documents the challenges and obstacles she faced while being deployed in post-9-11 Afghanistan. In addition to being a talented author, Lauren also works for Ignite Worldwide, a nonprofit which seeks to address the gender imbalance in STEM fields. Lauren, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I, I hope I do you justice with that, that intro and interesting conversation with intelligent people. I hope I can live up to that hype. Oh, you will. You will. Because, um, well, let me get right into it. Because we often hear stories, uh, generational stories of, you know, my grandfather was in World War II, and my dad was in Vietnam, and my and I'm, you know, but it's rare. Uh, and this is one of the few stories that chronicle a mother and daughter who have both served. So uh, what motivated you to share your story about you and your mother, and the generational aspects of military service for for women? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it is rare. Uh, and both of my grandfathers served in the World War II era as well. So we certainly have that family legacy that goes back a few generations. And honestly, I didn't set out to write a book. And even when the things I was writing started to shape themselves into some kind of book-like thing, I knew my mom would be a part of it because obviously she's been a big part of my life. But the more I wrote really the more it kind of emerged as this layered narrative. And I discovered so much of what set me up to join ROTC in college and then ultimately volunteer to deploy to Afghanistan was based on my mom's service and growing up around that military environment and regarding her as a hero and outside of military service as well. My, my mom has always been my hero. But that, that experience of having her deploy as an Army Reserve nurse in support of Operation Desert Shield, Desert Storm, when I was seven years old, really had a profound impact on me um, in a lot of ways. And, and one of those was to kind of ignite that that desire within me to, to someday follow in her footsteps. Um, <clears throat> it's interesting you mentioned, uh, you know, your mom was, was deployed during Operation Desert Storm. Uh, and you were such a small child at the time, um, being seven, that's a critical age uh, in the development of, of of young people, particularly the relationship between a mother and a daughter. So in a sense, you know, your mother was was not there during this time. But I'm curious to ask about your father, uh, because he had to take on the additional nurturing roles in the absence of your mom. So tell me about your dad and how he adjusted to um, taking care of you, you and your siblings at that time. That's a great question. And and he really did step up. I mean, jumped right into single parenthood. It, one of the things that was really challenging in that era is that there was so much uncertainty surrounding Desert Storm. And now we look back on it and we think that was a relatively short conflict. It was decisive. We were victorious, kind of almost best case scenario. But in the midst of it, it didn't we didn't know that was going to happen. There was so much uncertainty. Deployments weren't predictable like they are right now. My mom's unit was a hospital unit based in Seattle with 750 personnel. So everybody just kind of assumed we're too big and too expensive to ever deploy. That was part of why my mom had chosen that unit because it 
promised stability, except in the case of World War III. So hmm. Desert Storm rolled around and there was speculation that this might be World War III. There, there's a threat of chemical weapons and it, it might escalate into to nuclear proportions. So there was just, just a lot of unknowns. Um, I didn't know at the time, but my mom's orders were actually for an undetermined length of up to two years. So in addition to myself, my older sister turned nine while my mom was gone. And my my younger brother was just about two. Mm. So she was really plucked from this this young family. And of course, that impacted her dramatically. I'm, I'm a mother now. So thinking about that from the perspective of, of a parent is just heart wrenching. But certainly my my dad was was profoundly impacted, too. And he worked full time. He had to, to jump in to not just single parenting in the sense that, you know, he was nurturing us and taking care of us, but also shuttling three kids around to a variety of activities and getting us to school and picking us up after school. So he really stepped in and and was amazing. And we had such incredible support from our community as well. Um, You know, it was another interesting thing about that era is because my mom was a reservist, we didn't have the the base infrastructure around us. So it wasn't like we were in a community where Mm. everyone was going through this. Mm -hmm. We were really the only ones in, in our local community. And on one hand, that was, it was great because we got so much support because everybody knew they're the family whose mom is gone. We got to step up and help. And we had folks driving carpools and neighbors watching us before and after school and neighbors would drop off these funny tasting casseroles and (laughs) we'd stick them in our freezer. But it was also very isolating to be the only people experiencing that in a direct manner. Uh, one of the things you write about uh, were the you you know the the yellow ribbons that were everywhere during that time, and how that was a constant reminder to you. Um, looking back on it now, um, you were affected more so than just a ribbon. For some people, you know, they post a ribbon, and it was their way of support. But that that was a constant reminder as a kid everywhere you went, right? That that hey, this thing's going on, and my mom's over there. Tell me about that. Yeah, there, there was a, a big yellow ribbon around a, a maple tree at our elementary school. And we'd walk by there going into school every day and coming out of school every day. And it was a nice gesture. Of course, everyone was showing support. That was there really just for my mom. But for me, it was a constant reminder. And I, I saw that ribbon at least twice a day, every day. And I, I just hated looking at it because it was this this ever present, looming, horrible thing that was going on in my life. Um, in your book, you detail the reasons uh, why you made the decision to enlist uh, after 9-11, and you were ultimately deployed to Afghanistan. Um, what did you know about the region before your deployment, and what was your role once you were on the ground? Well, I knew you know, about what a marginally informed citizen knew about the region at that point. The thing with Afghanistan, it is such a dynamic area. And the the dynamics vary drastically depending on on where you are and when you're there. It's such a a, a diverse region geographically. There's, there's mountains that are just chopping it up in all these different sections. And because of that, you know, this the tribal culture has really thrived there for for centuries. So you get little pockets of civilization that for the most part don't connect with each other. And depending on which pockets you're interacting with, it can be a very different experience. So I didn't understand all of those nuances. And, and I you know, can't claim that, that now after being there, I do either. 
but I went to three months of pre-deployment training prior to leaving. Um, so I, I was an Air Force officer. I was a public affairs officer stateside. And my role on the deployment was as part of a provincial reconstruction team. And that's a fancy way of saying a you know, PRT because everything in the military must have an acronym. And our job was to focus in one Afghan province. So there are 26 Afghanistan provinces. We were assigned to Paktia province in southeastern Afghanistan on the Pakistan border. And our role there was to, to work on building infrastructure and access to basic services and mentoring government officials. So the, the hearts and minds mission, that was a big you know, trendy thing to talk about for, for a good stretch there during the war. The idea that you're not winning the war by killing all the bad guys, but by eroding their support and building support in more legitimate structures, hmm. like we were hoping the Afghan government would be, and you know, access to education and medical assistance, those kinds of things. Obviously, that, that's a, a big job to accomplish in, in nine months, and <laughs> we, we did not accomplish it in full force that way. Um, but the, the pre-deployment training was was both to prepare us for any kind of combat situation we could find ourselves in. We didn't have a combat mission. It, it was more a bureaucratic mission, the kind of shaking hands, kissing babies, singing kumbaya. Mm -hmm. But the nature of, of the war and the nature of counterinsurgency is that you can find yourselves in combat at, at any moment. So we had to be prepared for that. I carried two weapons everywhere I went. Thankfully, I never used them. But a huge component of the training for us was spinning us up as as much as possible within a, a three month period on the the complicated tribal dynamics and and customs in Afghanistan and you know the the political information. So we knew more or less the environment we were walking into and how we could go about winning hearts and minds, uh, building relationships with the people there and understanding you know, how construction contracting works in that environment and understanding how women are regarded in that environment. So a lot, lot of lot of different things at play that, you know, encompassed our our training in ways that people don't think of military military training. You know, they think of weapons qualification, which we did, but we also sat through hours and hours of briefings on Afghan culture and role played it, that we were sitting in meetings with tribal leaders and and worked with interpreters to understand how that process worked. Um, public information and narratives are carefully controlled uh, by the military, especially in war times. Um, how did you deal with the pressure of communicating maybe a what you know some would call a controlled narrative uh, versus communicating what you were actually seeing on the ground? Did you see some conflicts there, and did you have to struggle with some of that? I absolutely did. Yeah, and that ultimately took a toll on me. It was something that I, I recognized that disparity very quickly after arriving in Afghanistan. Um, we were there for the presidential election that they had in Afghanistan in 2009, which was, for lack of a, a more eloquent term, a mess. <laughs> and the messages that we were sharing about it were not capturing that messiness of it. That was one of the first instances where my my expectations of what that experience would be like, you know, the whole holding hands and singing Kumbaya clashed very harshly with mm -hmm. the reality of it in that it just is such a complicated place and a very complicated situation. And the, the messages that were coming out of that area, which were perpetuated by 
folks like me, whose job it was to communicate those messages, were not capturing the the full story. Um, women often face uh, challenges and obstacles as soldiers uh, that men don't have to deal with, just you know, flat out. Um, what were some of the unique challenges that uh, you and other female soldiers had to deal with uh, during your deployment? It is much more difficult as a woman in body armor to pee. <laughs> Uh, so that's a, that that was definitely challenging. Um, you have to do this like ninja move to wriggle under your body armor and unhook your your holster and yeah, just m- much more complicated as a woman. But in all seriousness, I, I was very fortunate in in my team. I had a wonderful supportive team and was not exposed to some of the more horrible experiences that that women and, and men can have in a war zone. You know, I, I didn't deal with military sexual trauma. I experienced some harassment, but for the most part, it was it was very minor. So thankfully that that didn't come into play in my experience. Where my gender was really most pronounced was in my interactions with the local people in Afghanistan. Mm. Paktia was still a very conservative province. Women were still wearing burqas, which at that point in the war, 2009-2010, in some more liberal areas, um, women were just wearing headscarves, or even in Kabul, they were wearing Western-type clothes. That was not the case in Paktia. There was still very much a segregated society. So I had the very amazing opportunity of of meeting some of the women and kind of getting a peek you know, into the other side of that society that most folks don't see, which was one of the most rewarding experiences of of my deployment. But most of my interactions were with men. Men were in positions of power. So they were the ones that our team would meet with to you know, talk about building construction projects in their province and you know how how we can win hearts and minds. And it was a very odd position to be in as a woman, kind of infiltrating that that boys club in a lot of ways. Mm. And the Afghans would you know, approach my team when we arrived at a at a venue or when they, they came on base to meet with us. And they were excited because we we brought money and developments to this this tiny, poor rural province. So they would they would get really excited to come meet us in the receiving line. But as they got closer and noticed that I was a woman, they saw my hair bun sticking out. They saw you know my facial features and some of them would just skip right over me and shake the hands of wow. the folks next to me. And some some on the opposite end of the spectrum would get like really excited to see me. And we made it on the news in Afghanistan. Um, the, the women on my team when we were out on missions got our pictures taken and got filmed, even if we had nothing to do with what was happening at the event. So it was a strange spotlight in, in being in that position, but also carried an air of invisibility with it. So it's a, a very interesting dynamic. Hmm. Um, you talk openly about uh, your service and the deployment and the impact it had on your mental health. Uh, you were diagnosed with chronic adjustments disorder, which um, some have labeled uh, a moral injury. Tell me about that diagnosis and the label of moral injury uh, and maybe why that's a more accurate term. Absolutely. So chronic adjustment disorder was my official diagnosis when I left the military after I completed my um, four-year commitment following ROTC. And the best way I could describe that at the time was kind of like PTSD light, or I didn't quite check all the boxes to to qualify for PTSD. 
But reflecting on my experience now, the the label I would give it that I think is the best fit is is moral injury, which is really a, a relatively new term. It's not something that that was in play when, when I was serving. Really, just in the last decade or so, it has become part of the conversation. And over the last few years with COVID, it actually has been used to describe what medical professionals have gone through. And moral injury refers to not a physical wound or a psychological or or mental wound in the way that we think of PTSD, but an injury of the soul. So where you are experiencing something, you've done something, you've witnessed something that comes into conflict with with your morals, very strong conflict. So in the example of the medical professionals, they are trying to provide a, a medical service and help people who they are not able to to help or who don't want to be helped. Um, so th- those kind of things can, can cause moral injury. For me, it was my role as information filter and seeing what was happening versus what I was sharing and, and the military was sharing was happening. And on, on both sides of that coin, sharing stories with the Afghan people, I felt like I was referring them to a broken system in, in their government. And with the American and international publics, I felt like the messages that that we were sharing were not giving them enough information to make an informed decision about the war effort that they were supporting with their tax dollars and with their sons and daughters. Um, shifting gears now, uh, maybe let's go to something a little bit lighter. Um, <laughs> did you know prior to your service uh, that you had the ability to write? Uh, but if not, when did you realize that you had a talent to actually be an author and you know write books? I have always fashioned myself a writer. I actually used to run around in the backyard talking to myself. And when my mom asked what I was doing, I said, I'm writing books. <laughs> I, I don't know how eloquent those stories were, but I, I've always loved writing. I, I was that that weird kid in school who actually liked writing essays. I, I enjoyed those assignments. I majored in English in college. So I found my way to the public public affairs career field in large part because of the journalism aspect. Mm. We ran the base newspaper and wrote press releases. And I really fell in love with nonfiction writing there and, and talking to these amazing people on base. I was stationed at a, a special operations base in Florida and people just had the most amazing stories, the things they were doing in the military and the things that they were doing outside the military. I met a group of guys who was climbing the seven summits, the the highest peak Mm -hmm. on each continent in in honor of fallen comrades. And I got an opportunity to write a series of articles that kind of followed them through this process. And I just loved stories and and the way that they can illuminate our connections as humans and and the, the emotions behind an experience where even if you don't have that experience directly, you can relate to the emotions. Hmm. So I, I always had this love of writing and you thought maybe someday I'll write a book. Of course, I didn't know what that meant. And this book evolved not necessarily out of setting out to write a book, but really just because I, I've i always considered myself a writer and I like to write and that's how I process things. It's This book started out as, as a processing for me. So kind of purging the things that I'd experienced in Afghanistan and trying to figure out what they meant and and what to do with them. And I do that in a much more effective way 
through writing as opposed to just letting my mind reel and, and think about everything in an unorganized fashion. So once I got the, the purging done and had some, some guidance with the support of therapists and with the support of my master's in fine arts um, in creative writing, I was able to start shaping it into something that resembled a book. And that still took like 12 years. It was, it was, it was not, not a simple process by any means. Well, you've tapped into something because your book is an excellent read and um, you, you have the ability to, uh, again, just show and portray what was going on. And uh, you come at it from a perspective of, um, hey, this is my experience and this is what happened. And people can kind of process it and, and think, OK, well, what would I do in that situation? So you really uh, hit on something with the story you're telling because uh, it's so compelling and unique, as I said, in the open. Um, it's such a unique story, especially in the narrative of uh, war books and war films and war uh, chronicles throughout the years. It's rare that we uh, get an opportunity to um, think about a mother who is a soldier and then passing it on, some, so to speak, to her daughter. Just a unique perspective. So congratulations on the book. Thank you so much. Um, let me ask you now, uh, as the mother of twin toddler girls, um, given the military experience of you and your mother, uh, what lessons will you share with them uh, about the military? And will you try to dissuade them from enlisting or what's going to because, you know, at some point they're going to want to talk about that. So uh, what are your thoughts already on because uh, your mom had some interesting conversations with you in the book about her service and, and you know, what what you were going to go through. But tell me about the lessons you're going to share with your daughters uh, when they when they start asking those questions. Well, I guess a great benefit of writing a book is I can just give that to them and say, <laughs> here, re read this. <laughs> That's much more in depth than any conversation we could have. Um, yeah, this is something I've, I've thought a lot about since having my girls. And they were about two months old when U.S. forces withdrew from Afghanistan. So that for me, I mean, in the midst of, you know, utter exhaustion and the overwhelm of new parenthood, that was a big pull on my brain was thinking about, you know, this kind of the end of a chapter, um, certainly in in our history in Afghanistan's history, unfortunately, a, a pretty tragic end. Mm -hmm. And it concludes that part of my life in, in a lot of ways. And the girls start a new chapter of my life. And so that gave me pause to reflect on what it must have been like for my mom to be in mm -hmm. that position and, and thinking about wanting to protect a child. But what does that mean? In, in protecting a child, are you sheltering them? When do you expose them to reality and to what extent? It, it's a very fine balance. And I have been thinking about this for the last year and a half. Thankfully, I have a few more years since I have to actually broach those conversations. But it is, it's a really complicated thing. And, and I think, you know, what I've settled on for now is I just, I want to be open and honest and acknowledge that I, I learned a lot from my experience in the military and I, I grew a lot. I definitely wouldn't be the the woman I am, the mother I am today, if not for that. There are also things that I regret about that experience. Mm. And, and I want to be open that, about that. You know, I'm, I'm not perfect. And it's not black and white. Uh, war and, and life and humanity are so, so complicated. So what I would like to 
advise them and, and anyone, if they consider joining the military, is just to expose yourself to as many perspectives as possible. Read accounts of, of those who've served, talk to people who are serving, expose yourself to, to narratives that aren't you know, the mainstream ones that you're seeing in Hollywood. You know, the, the war experience is not fully captured in American Sniper. There are so many different aspects and, and it is just, it's very, very complicated and you can never fully prepare yourself for what your unique experience is gonna be like, but educating yourself to the extent possible and having those difficult conversations before you find yourself in the midst of an experience that you know rips the rug out from under you and you're kind of forced to have those difficult conversations because you don't know where you stand on anything. You know, try to preempt that as much as possible and, and get a better idea of what you're walking into. Um, tell me now about your work with Ignite. Uh, what's your role with the organization and uh, what are some of the things you guys are doing to close that gap, that gender gap uh, in STEM activities? I love my job. I'm <laughs> so fortunate to have a job that I that I genuinely enjoy. Ignite is an acronym, uh, <laughs> like the military, stands for Inspiring Girls Now in Technology Evolution. And we work with schools. I'm, I'm based in the Seattle area. Um, so schools in Seattle, as well as in San Francisco and nationwide now, because we have virtual programming mm. and set up events with company partners to expose students, um, girls, young women, non-binary, agender and transgender and gender queer students. So anyone from historically underrepresented genders in, in high wage, high demand STEM fields and just provide opportunities for them to learn what those fields are all about. Um, a lot of the students we work with don't have strong female role models in those positions. You know, they think the only path for me is to do what my parents do. And, you know, maybe their parents are, are in a, a service industry and which is fine, um, but it may not provide the, the satisfaction and the family sustaining wages that they're looking for. So just exposing them to all of those opportunities, uh, connecting them with, with role models in those fields who come from similar backgrounds so they can really understand this is a possibility for me. And here's someone who's been through some similar challenges and now has a successful career so I can do it too. Um, well, Lauren, I've really appreciated our conversation today. Uh, I want to thank you for coming on and sharing uh, your story. And uh, if people want more information about you or where they can get a hold of the book, uh, where can they go? I have a website. It's laurenkjohnson.com. And K is spelled out K-A-Y. Uh, there's a tab on there where you can read about the book and read an excerpt, some articles I've written if you need a little bit more information to, to see if you want to commit with the full thing and um, a bunch of places where where you can go to to buy the book it's available through most local bookstores so if you have a, a local bookstore that you're fond of if they don't have it on their shelves then they can order it um, and I always recommend supporting local bookstores so check it out there but it's also available on bookshop.org Barnes and Noble and Amazon Fantastic. Well, uh, again, thank you so much. Uh, this has been another edition of The Edric Show. My guest has been Lauren K. Johnson, author of the new memoir, The Fine Art of Camouflage, available everywhere. And you can go to our website and get more information about Lauren. Um, and as always, this is the place for intelligent conversation with interesting people. I have been your host, Edric Jerome. I want to thank you for tuning in and we will catch you on the next episode.